0: Merry Christmas, friends. I'm so thrilled you've come to celebrate your Christmas Eve with us and brought your family here to to join our family. We celebrate the birth of Jesus tonight, and I want to tell you uh, about a story. I want to tell you a story. It's one of the greatest stories ever told, I think. It's a story with love and courage. It's a story with heroism, sacrifice, and mystery. And that story is... Uh, the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I gotcha. Every year about this time, I can't explain it. The, the weather gets a little cold, and boom. Uh, I'm I'm grabbing my popcorn and my remote, and I'm queuing up The Lord of the Rings on Amazon Prime. The extended versions, that's right, baby, all 12 hours <laughs> of Middle Earth goodness. And I don't know what it is. It's just this guy, who, I just sit back in the... You can have all your classic movies. I know there's some good ones out there. You can have your Elf. You can have your White Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life, Die Hard. Whatever is your, your go-to classic. For me, Christmas means Hobbits and Orcs. It just Now, when uh, J.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings um, 70 years ago or so, he introduce, introduced us to, to many amazing characters that have stood the test of time, Frodo and Gandalf and Samwise and so many others. Um, but whether you watch the movies, if you got into the movies, or if you read the books, and I did read them uh, back when I was a teenager, like every good teenage nerd in the 80s, we read Lord of the Rings. Um, but one of the things you'll notice is that you never find uh, J.R. Tolkien like, wielding a sword against the orcs. Uh, you never see Tolkien enjoying second breakfast with Pippin. You never see, you know, J.R. Tolkien, it, it never wrote himself in the story. Um, now, of course, you, you could say that he, he's definitely in the story. Even though he's not in the story as a character, you could say that Tolkien is everywhere in that story as its creator. Right? Tolkien crafted this entire just brilliant literary world, this universe populated with characters and love and war and good and evil. Um, in fact, it's said that J.R. Tolkien, did you know J.R. Tolkien was the one who led, helped lead C.S. Lewis to Christ. Uh, so, The Lord of the Rings, it has Tolkien's, every, every single word, every page, every scene has his fingerprints all over it. But the Bible. When we look at the Bible, the Bible's story is, is both like this and unlike this. Like Tolkien, God is the creator of the biblical story. He's the author. Um, the biblical world, the entire universe, in fact, exists because of him. He is the ultimate author. But unlike Tolkien, God the author is also a character in the story itself. And when we open the story, this epic that we call the Bible, he appears right there on the very first page. In the very first chapter, the first verse, it says, in the beginning, God created. So, he's jumping into the story right there. Later on, just a chapter or so later, we see God is walking with Adam in a garden that God created. He sits down a few a few chapters later, he sits down for lunch with Adam, A guy named Abraham, he sits with Moses on a mountain that God created. And one cold winter's night, God sleeps in a manger with his mother gazing down at his face. Not only does every word, every page, and every scene have God's fingerprints on it, but God himself is present. The divine author of the universe has written himself into his very own story. And here's what also is amazing to me. God, the author, he writes himself into the story as one of us, a human being. God doesn't write himself. He doesn't appear in the skies of Bethlehem as a flaming, you know, all-seeing eye like Sauron or something. He's not even, he doesn't even appear as some kind of like thunderbolt-wielding demigod like Zeus or something like that, or even like some gleaming white elf that glows or barely touches the ground or anything like that. No, no, no. God takes on flesh and blood, and he's born of a woman. He lived among us, sharing of our joys and our sorrows. He suffered and died in the story he wrote. And even then, even when he died, he doesn't rise again as as a ghost, but in a body whose scars could be touched. So in the beginning, God made man. But in the midst of our story, God became man. And that is what Christmas is all about. The celebration of the incarnation. The incarnation, just a fancy Latin word that simply means the divine God becoming a human flesh and blood. It's it's unimaginable. And and it's why one of the names that he's known by is Emmanuel that we sang about, God with us. And Christmas is the celebration. What we're really doing is we're celebrating the divine author of life showing up in his own story. It's it's the greatest mystery. It's the greatest story ever, the story of God with us us. The word made flesh. But it it kind of begs the question, why did God do it this way? Why did he do it this way? And those are some, that's a good question because there's a lot of ways he could have done it. Why not just kind of like create everything and just observe us from a distance, you know, detached from creation. Some people have that kind of view of a God who maybe like did stuff and then you just never see him again. He's just watching it all. Or maybe a God who, you know, uh, he just waves his magic wand and he could just make everything right. Poof. Why do it this way? Why go through all the trouble and the centuries and the millennia of human history, diving down into the blood, sweat, and dirt of our planet? There's a lot of explanations for why. Um, It's the question that keeps theologians and Bible scholars in business for the last 2,000 years. But I want to focus on three reasons tonight why God appears among us in the very story he's writing. The first reason that God became one of us is to love us, simply to love us. He wanted wanted us to know and to feel his love, not just to hear about his love. The Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends when he was on the earth, wrote this, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his son. See, God isn't just loving. He's love itself. That's his very nature. He, in fact, God eternally exists as this Trinitarian relationship of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from time immemorial. And then he desires to bring us into that circle of love so we can experience that love. It's why God says that the greatest commandment that he gave us is to love him and to love our neighbor. So God demonstrated his love by coming down to live and to die for us, while we were still broken, while we were still ignorant, he came down. And I think, why did he do this? Because, you know, God could have done it a bunch of different ways. He could have written a love letter, he could have just written a letter, sent it down to us, and we, you know, we read about it like a pen pal. But this God came to us in person to let us see him in the flesh. He loved us with his actions and not just his words. This God gives up his glory and his power and his majesty, and he takes on our weakness and our humility, our pain. So in the Christmas story, we see the king of kings and born not in a palace, not even in like a great holy temple, but in a barn, in a small village, in a troubled land. And even there, he doesn't come, he doesn't be allow himself to be born as one of the conquering people of the land, the people of the privilege, but as one of the oppressed who lived there. And then he lived a life of such unheard of love, forgiving his enemies, healing the outcasts, being a friend to the unworthy. God enters the story, number one, to love us. That's reason number one. The second reason God became one of us is to know us to know us. He wanted to share our experiences and our feelings, our struggles. God wanted to be with us, right? He didn't just want to watch us. Listen to how the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, right? We don't have a God who just looks and goes, that looks tough. I can't imagine what that's like, right? But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, Yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I think about why did he do it this way? God is omniscient, right? The idea is that God knows everything, he's omniscient. And so staying separated from us, that should have been an easy choice for him. He knows everything anyway. He knows the past, the present, the future. He knows our thoughts and our feelings, our intentions. He literally knows us better than we know ourselves. But what I find in the scriptures is a God who understands that there is a knowing that is kind of logical and factual, you know, like you just know something, like you know the moon is up there right now. There's, you know, it's a piece of information. Yeah, you accept it. But then there is a knowing that is experiential, it's intimate. In fact, in the scriptures, it's why the word translated knowing. Is a, is a common human you, uh, Hebrew euphemism in the scriptures for what happens when a man and a woman love each other very much and kiss a bunch. <laughs> Knowing. It's intimate. So he didn't just use his divine knowledge and read our minds from heaven. He wasn't content with that. He came to become one of us. And when you think about it, he did something that would have otherwise been impossible. He experiences something that would have been impossible for an almighty God being to experience. He experiences humility. Like how else is God ever going to experience humility? Vulnerability, lack, thirst, hunger, temptation, pain, and death. All of these things he chose to experience firsthand. Why? Why? because this is the author that loves us enough to dive into the story. The third reason that God became one of us is to save us. And I'm so glad of this, that God was not content to just pity us. He craved to rescue us, to restore us. That same writer of Hebrews Goes on to say this because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We're set free. We're no longer slaves to the fear of dying. We have a God who is holy and just and perfect and righteous and all those things, but instead of just condemning the human population for you know, ruining his creation, Jesus came to save us instead. He said those very words. He said, I, I don't come to condemn you. I come to save you. I come to rescue you. God is like the righteous judge who, you know, in the courtroom, instead of passing sentence on the guilty, forgives them because that's all of us. He forgives us, but he doesn't just stop there because honestly, where's the justice in that, right? If you're a victim and the judge just says, oh, I forgive you, Mr. Criminal, that doesn't do you a whole lot of good, does it? Right? So, he doesn't just stop with forgiving. This God restores us. He actually heals the wounds, not only the wounds that other people caused in us, but he heals the wounds in us that make us do the horrible things that we do. See, and and that blows me away, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we only really understand retributive justice, this idea of retributive justice is punishment. That's kind of the best we can do. If you go to court, if someone does something terrible to you or they take someone you love away from you, you know, the best we can do is go, we're sorry, we'll punish this guy really bad, but that doesn't really give you back anything, does it? But see, this God isn't just into retributive justice. He is into restorative justice. This Jesus heals both victim criminal, because he sees sin as a sickness to be cured. And he wants nothing more than for every single saint, sinner, and skeptic who will say yes and just surrender to his love so he can restore them. He wants to restore them to the divine image bearers he created all of us to be. This God is the babe in the manger whose very first converts... According to the story, we're a group of poor sheep herders and three pagan astrologers from the Near East. No one is outside of his reach. No one is too far gone to be rescued. So how does he save us? He saves us by entering into our broken world. He saves us by entering into death itself on the cross and defeating death, hell in the grave from the inside out. And that's the same way he saves us. Not by making us more moral, but by declaring us holy. By bringing us back to life. Declaring us his. By bearing our guilt and our shame and our sin on himself and pronouncing it all erased. And how do we enter into that that salvation? How do we enter into this story that he's writing? By simply saying yes to him. Saying yes to the author of our lives. Yes to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of the universe. By saying yes to relationship with him. Even before we've done anything to like deserve it. Or anything before we've ever done anything to fix ourselves. Or really even before we've figured out how it all works, right? Who cares how it works? Salvation starts with a yes. He's the author of your story who has jumped into your story to turn your story into a masterpiece. One more passage I want to read from Hebrews. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus do it? Because the very thought of you brings him joy. You bring him joy. And Jesus is the author that you can trust in. You can put your faith in him because he is the author who will finish what he started. He is faithful. Dear God, Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the gift of incarnation. We thank you, dear God, for trading the bliss of heaven, Father, for the dirt of this world for for living as an example for all of us. Lord God, we thank you. You suffered crucifixion at our hands, and we thank you for overcoming death so that we can all experience new life. I ask you, Lord Jesus, just to continue to fill us with your Spirit, even after we leave this place tonight. Lord, make us your witnesses in a world who so desperately needs this hope. Jesus, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. One of the ways that Christians for thousands of years have joined God in this story is through the practice of communion. For for Christ followers, communion isn't just a ritual, it's a reality. It, and 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 because Jesus is not just with us in symbol, he's with us in presence. And there is something mysterious going on there, and I can't explain it to you, but there is something mysterious. In communion, for us, is a way of becoming what we eat, right? We take the body of Christ, and we are the body of Christ. We become the temple of His Spirit. See, 2,000 years ago with the incarnation, God took on our human nature, and in communion, it's a way that we partake of His divine nature. And that's why at Christmas, even as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we never forget where it was all leading to 33 years later, His death and His resurrection, that ultimate act of love for us. And to all of you here tonight, uh, whether you're a guest or whether you're a member of our church, we welcome you at this spiritual table to share in the Lord's Supper This is offered for those who love Jesus and for those who want to love him more. It's for those who have much faith and for you who have little. For you who have been here often and for you who have only just arrived, it's for you who have tried to follow and for you who have failed. You are exactly who the Lord wants to commune with tonight. And if you're here and you've never taken that step, to say yes to Jesus, just a yes to Jesus. This is a wonderful time right now. The uh, scriptures tell us, it teaches Christians to prepare our hearts for communion, to take it seriously. We take it seriously, we prepare our hearts. So I'm gonna lead us all in this prayer of confession you see on the screen. So whether you're a believer for a long time, or maybe you felt far from God for a while, or, or maybe tonight, You want to say yes to Jesus for the very first time. I invite you to pray these words on the screen with me now. Can we all say these together? Here we go. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And friends, the good news is that God is merciful to all who confess their sin and in humility ask for mercy. 100% of the time, He's merciful. And so we can declare confidently tonight whatever baggage you came in here with, whatever guilt or shame or past you walked in here with, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And so we can take this bread and this cup, not in guilt or shame, but we can take it with gratitude. The body of Christ broken for you the blood of Christ shed for you.